Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Admitting It. I'm your and girl, I'm your Nettie. Girl and today we have a very special guest. Um, her name is Mika. If you want to go on ahead and in- introduce yourself, what you do, who you are, um, kind of give us the rundown. And then we're going to dive into some like cool questions later so you can get all the answers all right. about Mika and her spectacular background. All right. All right. Well, first of all, Nettie and Dee, I want to thank you guys for having me on your podcast. Um it's definitely my honor and um, I'll introduce myself. So my name is Mika Wagner. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and spit the age. I'm almost 47 years old. I am currently an assistant coach at the University of Idaho. Um, I attended the University of Southern California uh, between 1991 and 1994. Volleyball wise, I graduated in 95. Um, From there, I went to Switzerland to play professionally and um, that, that just kind of turned into a 19-year professional volleyball career, uh, four countries. So Switzerland, Germany, uh, primarily Italy, with a parentheses in Spain. And then I was also uh, a member of the U.S. Women's National Team for two years. Uh, I lived overseas from when I was 21 up until 2015. I came back to the States, worked for two years in fashion. Um, then I went and worked. Wow. Yeah, worked for two years after that nearly in a group home as a residential counselor because I had wanted to have more time um, with my hobby and my passion, which is which is fashion. And um, I got a phone call probably about a year and a half ago now. Uh, well, actually, actually about a year ago um, from one of my old teammates at USC. And she's like, Mika, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, Hey, you know, Deb, how are you doing? What's up? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm in Southern California decompressing. I just quit my job as a counselor in a group home. And she said, do you want to come decompress in Moscow, Idaho? And I'm like, sure. And then she's <laughs> the head coach at the university of Idaho. And so, uh, I headed up there, uh, in, uh, in, uh, early August and the rest is history. I'm currently an assistant coach there. Wow. wow, that's that's such an awesome like bio start to finish, like resume start to finish. <laughs> I'm like, wow, she was played for the U.S. and you played international volleyball. Yeah. And like, I, I guess like because I used to be a volleyball mm-hmm. player and I guess for me, it was never like I never really thought past high school. And then I got the opportunity to play in college and then I never really saw it past mm-hmm. college it's just really awesome to hear like okay like look this is a professional sports and career you might have to go overseas to do it um mm-hmm. but just being like open to it and then being able to play for the u.s women's team um did you w- win any medals while you were on no the team? i was actually on the team um while they were reconstructing so when i when i finished oh. college it was 95 the olympics were 96 so i had already gone to switzerland mm-hmm. to play um when I came back, it was just right after the Olympics. So they were rebuilding. And so I was there okay. for a couple of years during the rebuilding years. And uh, toward the middle of my second year, I had gotten an offer to play in Italy. And um, at, mm-hmm. at that time, uh, there were no uh, limits on the number of foreigners that you can have on a team. And so basically, mm-hmm. it was the strongest league in the world. And there were players from every national team. And I'm talking like top players, hall of famers from every national team from all over the world. And they were going to be competing in Italy because they have this, you know, this limitless number of foreigners that you can have on your team. And so I was, you know, presented with this opportunity and, um, you know, I had to make a choice, you know, because at the time the coach, uh, pretty much told me, well, if you know, I want to, you know, I want that the team is, you know, here training all the way through 2000. So, um, you know, if you leave, you can't come back. And I said, okay, I'm out. I made the choice to, to go wow. to Italy. And um, and just to kind of backtrack, like you said, you never really saw playing past high school. I didn't really see playing past college. Um, I At the mm-hmm. time, I was uh, dating uh, a football player at ASU, and I was thinking, oh, okay, I'll just, you know, he was a year younger than me. So I'm like, okay, I'll just go to ASU mm-hmm. and go to grad school and, you know, go to law school and be a lawyer. Well, that relationship ended. You know, I, I got my heart broken, and and so I had called this agent that had reached out to me while I was playing in college. And I said, you know, I told you I didn't Mm -hmm. want to go overseas. I said, but I changed my mind. I said, and you know, send me wherever, I don't care. And that wherever ended up being Lucerne, Switzerland. And then that turned into Germany, which turned into national team, which turned into Spain, which turned into Italy and so forth. That is awesome. I mean, it sucks that you got your heart broke, but it's just like (laughs) awesome to be like, 
I was just like, look, get me out of here. Send me somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't care where it is. But just to be open to that, because my mom always, she always says, like, don't cut yourself off from blessings. And so sometimes we do that right. ourselves by saying, like, I don't want this. I don't want that. And blah, blah, blah. And it's like, just be saying, like, I want this. And I'm open to receive it however it happens. And, like, and this it may be how it happens. And I'm going to go. And so, like, for you to have that freedom and flexibility to do that um, is a blessing itself. And then to have, like, the mindset to say, I want to do it and I don't care where I go. And I'm sure you didn't think you would go to Switzerland. <laughs> you know, you know what's so funny? I didn't. So, I had no idea. And, and it's so funny that you, your mom is probably not that much older than me. And so the fact that she's telling mm -hmm. you, you know, or told you to not block your blessings and just kind of go with things. I didn't, you know, come to that mentality, you know, until maybe about 10 years ago. And so, you know, that was a process mm -hmm. for me to kind of get into that mindset. At the time, I was just like, all right. You know, I wasn't thinking about blessings or anything. <laughs> it was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm devastated. My heart's broken. I need to get out of here. That's literally what was on my mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sent me to Switzerland. I remember my, my grandparents and my mom and dad, my sister dropped me off at the airport and I cried myself to sleep uh on the plane <laughs> but after that after that i i you know I, I stayed over there for 20 years over in europe and so <laughs> that's awesome yeah that I'm, is, I'm crying yeah, now that i'm back in the states actually with all this stuff going on <laughs> i know <laughs> i know you you want to talk about that for a little bit we were going to do our check-ins but like i like i think this is a good check-in for us as we're all black mm -hmm. women or identify mm -hmm. as black women um so I, I don't Mika, do you want to talk about like how you've been feeling about it and like what's been going on in your mind? And, you know, there's, there's just so many levels to it. Um, I, I think one of the words that can best describe how I'm feeling is emotionally spent and exhausted. And um, mm. I think the reason, you know, that, that it is that way is because everything that the world is seeing now, you know, that people all over the world are marching for now, black, white, purple, pink, everything. These are things that we have always known about our America as black women or black people, men, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I'm going to be very candid, you know, from the first time a nigger, that is when you realize that you have to put on that armor. And mm -hmm. so, you know, between, you know, overt and covert racism, institutional racism, you know, just all of this stuff, the bigotry, the sly remarks, the sly jokes, just all of that, the looks, the, what are you doing here mm -hmm. looks, the hate that you might perceive in someone's eyes just because you're a different color. These are things that we go through all the time, every day. The very fact that I pull money out of my wallet and I'm looking at a slave owner. The very fact that I have to introduce myself and write my name, I don't know how many times a day for the last 47 years, knowing that my last name was given to one of my ancestors who was a slave as property of his plantation owner. You know, mm -hmm. so our very identities are deeply rooted in something that is atrocious and painful. And um, mm -hmm. if I were to think about that, if I took that suit of armor off that I put on at six years old, the first time you know, somebody called me that and I thought about like the levels and how deep everything is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. I'd either be in a, you know, in a straight jacket somewhere. I wouldn't be on the earth. And so, mm -hmm. and so um, I think now with everything coming out and, you know, talking about it, seeing things being relived, watching history repeat itself and not in a good way has just brought forth, you know, a tidal wave of emotions and memories that, you know, a lot of them I had even blocked out. Mm -hmm. So it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. What was I, your, I was gonna say, what was your experience? How did your experience differ over in Europe though? I love that you asked me that question. I love that you asked me that question because I can count, and I used to tell everybody this all the time, I can count to this day um, on less than 10 fingers how many times I had experienced, you know, overt bigotry, covert bigotry, all the stuff that we, progressions, all of that. I can count on less than 10 fingers how many times that had happened to me over, you know, the span of 20 years in Europe. 
And as soon as I got off the plane to come back in the States, I had like five or six incidents, boom, just like that. hit me in my face. And I remember the first three months, it was so three to four months, it was so hard for me to adjust. And, um, you know, just being back in it. And um, I remember in Europe, that's actually where I learned to embrace my blackness, embrace and Mm -hmm. blackness, meaning, you know, in its totality, like, not thinking there was something wrong with it subconsciously, not having to defend it, not, you know, worrying about colorism. Like everybody thought, oh my gosh, your skin is so pretty. You're good. You know, God, I wish, you know, we stay out in the sun all day to try to get that dark. They would recognize it. It wasn't like a misappropriation and then not giving credit where credit is due. It was like, man, we lay out all day to try to get that dark and you're blessed with that skin. (laughs) I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard this from, you know, Europeans in all the countries that I, that I've traveled. And so, um, you know, I really learned to embrace my beauty, you know, at, at 24, 25 years old, because outside of my home and my mother telling me that black is beautiful, you know, and my, and my family, you know, reassuring me that my blackness was okay and it was enough and it's beautiful. I wasn't really hearing it from everybody else. You know, you right. grow up, you, you grow up looking at white dolls, you know, everybody's white on TV, you know, everything is white, snow white and, and angel food mm-hmm. cake and, and, uh, you know, everything right. that's good is white. Everything that's bad is dark, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is so ingrained in everything here. And, um, you know, when I went to Europe, because their history is, is vastly different. And the reason I say vastly different is not to say that there was no, you know, transatlantic slave trade because there very much was uh, that, that they weren't colonizers because they very much are and were. But their history and the history that they learn is real history. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not out here where it's like, okay, you know, you guys started at slavery where we, you came from, I don't know where, but you came here. Then there was a war. Robert E. Lee bad. Ulysses S. Grant good. Abraham Lincoln good. Martin Luther King marched. And the 90s, you know, you guys had Will Smith and Denzel Washington. So now everything's okay. You know, that's kind right. of what, right. that's, okay. water. <laughs> that's right. the history that we're taught here. Um, and in Europe, um, you know, these kids have a better, and, and, and the population, you know, they have a better understanding of real history. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that just makes it so much different. I'll give you another example. Um, I can't tell you how many times I was over there and people asked, why do you guys celebrate Thanksgiving? Like that is the rudest thing ever on the planet. Why do you celebrate Thanksgiving? And, I, and I'm just sitting there dumbfounded because I know, you know, that the indigenous people were treated like we were treated and, you know, and, and assimilated mm-hmm. and exterminated and put on, you know, reservations. And here's a couple of casinos and that's it. But, um, right. you know, they knew that over in Europe. They know that whole story. They know that Christopher Columbus called the indigenous people Indians because he thought he'd landed in India. Mm-hmm. You know, so they know the real history behind it and they'll tell you the real history. Well, out here, you know, we celebrate a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade and, you know, dress up as pilgrims and Indians. And, and <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, who are we offending anyway? It's a couple people sitting on a reserve, you know, I mean, it's 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 mind boggling, you know, how different it is and how different, you know, race and 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 race relations are in in, in the different countries with respects to what they are here. Yeah, I agree completely. I know that was a mouthful. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was it was refreshing. Actually, it was nice to see and hear another um, perspective to it. Another light shined on it, you know, because there are a lot of different stories that have um, not been told to the younger generation of young black people growing up in America. And so it is hard to find your your bearings in society when you don't have a sense of belonging and everybody you turn to is telling you that, you know, your, your skin it, being black is, is, is not a good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I like second all of that. And I think like, I just remember being in, in college, I can't remember what class this was, but they talked about like 
truth and reconciliation committees and like how a lot of countries have done this and have just come out and been like, this is our very egregious and terrible history. And what it does is it allows people to heal because now we know the truth and now you as a government have acknowledged the truth and now we can move forward. And that's what America has not done. And so that's, that's part of the reason why we continue to experience a lot of these very egregious and very terrible crimes. Um, And, reliving history and not in a good way because we refuse to acknowledge it when people's when we say black lives matter and then you're saying white lives matter it's a way of you again trying to erase our history trying to erase what's happening on here of course all lives matter but we're talking about the black ones right now right because you guys are killing us in the streets right and you're pretending like we don't matter so all lives don't matter apparently because our lives don't matter. Exactly. So again, black lives matter in addition to all of the other lives that matter, all of the white lives that matter, so do black people. Right. And like that, like that's the point. And so when people come and they combat and they say all lives matter, to me, it's a choice to be ignorant and it's also a choice to be a bigot. Like you, there's, there has been so much that's gone around social media and has even made it in such an elementary way, like a way that kindergartners can understand the right. point of it. Right. And if you, as a grown human being, have not cannot understand it, it's because you're choosing not to understand it, right. not because you can't or it's too hard to comprehend, because there are a million different ways. And we also have access to a ton of different technology. Right. And like... I remember my cousin sending me this thing. And when you, when you said like, we have like angel food cake and this and that, and just how whitewash we, like they, they make everything. I remember my cousin sending me this meme and it says, it said, your mind is so colonized. You think vanilla is white. And I said, oh oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you're right. The vanilla bean is black. But whenever they say anything vanilla, you look at it and you think it's white. Yes. The vanilla bean is black. Yes. It looks like a coffee bean. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a coffee bean, but it's the color of a coffee bean. Right. So it's just, it's interesting and how often, um, America really and the media tries to erase blackness in everything that they do. And then and then the psychology, I mean, this is like a conversation we can go so deep into because then you go into the psychology of colors and right. how they have tried to say black is bad and white is good and yeah. it's not. Yeah. Like Absolutely. black is the presence of all color and white is the absence of all color. Like that is literally what they teach you in um, in an art history class right. or if you're taking or if you're taking any kind of art class and right. like learning the prime colors. So it's really interesting how all of this can play out and has played out in America, really, because I feel like we're, I don't want to say we're the only nation dealing with this, but like we're, I feel like we're refusing to acknowledge it. I, I definitely feel like we're refusing to acknowledge it. And, um, you know, I think one of the challenges right now, and because I'm in a position where, you know, I'm, I'm, an, an assistant coach, um, you know, I've, I've been in a position and I'm still in a position to mentor. And right now the kids that I'm, I'm mentoring, they're primarily white. I mean, I'm, I'm an assistant coach at Idaho where, you know, the, it, it is not a whole lot of, you know, diversity up there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, one of the things that I think that, you know, where there is struggle is the fact that, you know, I know with the younger generations, with kids that are maybe, you know, anywhere from 15, you know, to 20, 21, it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm not about this, but, you know, my uncle is, you know, my, my, my granddad says some kind mm-hmm. of off stuff, you know, my, and so then you have people that are my age, Gen Xers, and the Gen Xers, mm-hmm. I, you know, we either swing one way or the other. It's like, I mean, because now, I mean, we, we, mu- we must be clearly, you know, a line has been drawn. This is, mm-hmm. this is a humanity right. issue. This is a right or wrong issue. There's no justifying it. There's no trying to find out, well, you know, maybe he had this record or that record or whatever record. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you had a kid that shot up an entire church and was taken to Burger King, sat down on the pit. Right. Before they took him in. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about right. somebody that tried to pass a $20 bill, you know, and, and mm-hmm. lost his life, you know, slowly and deliberately and purposefully. And so, right. you know, it, it's in everybody's face now. And there, there is, you know, you're either on one side of it or the other. You can't have it both ways. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's where the difficulty comes in 
for white people and for non-black people. You know, I'm seeing it, you know, friends of mine that I've had for 30 years, we've known each other since, you know, and in, like I said, and I'm gonna put a parenthesis around this, at 18 years old, we were in the 90s. And mm -hmm. so the 90s, I like to call that, you know, like if you look at the timeline of everything from the 1500s all the way to, you know, past the civil rights movement, you know, you get in the 70s, you get in the 80s, and then you got the 90s, you know, and, and it was a cool moment for black people. You know, we're, we, we've got Will Smith and Denzel Washington are top box office. We've got all kinds of different, you know, TV shows and positive TV shows about you know, black excellence on TV. You had The Cosby Show, you had Moesha, you had Family Matters, mm -hmm. you know, and back in the 70s, it was like Good Times and The Jeffersons and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and Sanford and Son. And I loved all three shows, but I mean, Good Times, the family was in the ghetto. You know, Jefferson, mm -hmm. Jefferson's, you know, they were accomplished and he was, a, you know, he was a, a businessman, but the, the whole, we're moving on up, you know, struggling, you know, you had different right. strokes where it was a white family of privilege that adopted these two little black kids, you know? So these, mm -hmm. these were the kinds of shows that we had in the sentence where you get to the nineties and then you have, you know, families that are prosperous, you know, the, the doctors, the lawyers, mm -hmm. this, that, and so on and so forth. On top of it, it was a huge, huge moment for hip hop and R&B. You had a ton of just talent, real and raw talent out there and, and just people of color just really, you know, in the spotlight. And, you know, it almost made us feel, and when I say us, I mean collectively us as the United States, well, you know, racism, you know, there's no racism. I mean, look at all these black people being successful. I mean, look how much money they're making. Look at all these, you know, stars and the music and, you know, and then, and, you know, and the, the backdrop of that is though, mass incarceration and, you know, the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. and, and so this was, the, you know, this was the nineties, you know, and then all of a sudden my freshman year in college, you know, I get in and uh, boom, Rodney King happens. So I'm watching the streets mm -hmm. of LA burning from the top of my dorms and mm. going, wow, you know, and uh, you know, the four policemen had been released, uh, you know, they, they moved the, the site of their court trial from downtown LA to Simi Valley, which was predominantly white and mm -hmm. they were acquitted of everything. And, you know, LA just went nuts. So this is my second round of riots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, does it, how does it feel to live through the second round? <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy, you know, and you know, when you're 18 and you've got all these ideals and you want to change the world and, you know, everything's cool and you're in this bubble because, you know, we're, I was in a bubble at USC you know, especially, mm -hmm. being, you know, a scholarship athlete. So it's like all the athletes kind of hung out with each other and, you know, quote, between my air quotes, nobody saw color. Um, that's actually where I realized that I was real black in college, mm -hmm. despite, you know, guys from different, you know, races, you know, wanting to date me or whatever. Um, I was referred to as a nigger twice in college and that made it very, that okay, Mika, mm. you know, it ain't a microcosm. Right. It ain't a microcosm. You know, it, th this bubble right here, it's a fantasy bubble. And even in this bubble, you know, you're not like them, period. And they're mm -hmm. not going to see you like them. And so, you know, and kind of goes back to that armor, you know, that you have to wear as a child. You know, you just, okay, you know, you just let it deflect and you just keep it, you keep it pushing. Right. That, it's, it's so crazy because, like, as you were saying that, I'm, like, thinking, like, oh, when was the first time that like I remember being called a nigger? And I and I don't know if I've ever been called a nigger since then, but I do remember this one time and it was very clear. And I'm wondering, D, if you have a story as well. And like it's sad that one, we would even have to like recall these stories. But I just remember being like around like maybe seven or eight and being on vacation in the Bahamas in a pool playing with like a little like with a little kid. Cause you know, kids don't see color, they just see a friend. Right. And so we're we're having fun. We're in the pool. We become great friends. And so she convinces me, let's go to the deep end. And I was like, no, I don't know if I want to go to the deep end. I'm not that confident swimming in the deep end yet. And she's like, no, let's go. You know, like if you get on my back, like it's fine. Even if we start to sink, just stay on there. And I was like, well, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a good idea, but you're seven. And so now she's convinced you. And now I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll go. So we went to the deep end and I remember us starting to sink. And then she was like, hold on. And I was like, no, no, this doesn't like, this doesn't feel right. So I remember starting, I got off her and I like was starting to swim away. So we're both essentially drowning in the deep end. Her dad jumps in, separates us. 
and then tells me, move you nigger, wow. gets his daughter and gets out the pool and leaves me there to drown. And wow. I believe it was her uncle or someone else jumped in and saved me before my parents even had realized that there, you know, that there was, there was all this commotion going on and realized it, that it was me at the end of the pool. Wow. Be, and so, and I remember that so much and I didn't, I didn't know how much weight it had oh, at yeah. the time. And so it took me like, it took me years to be like, oh my, like this person really called me a nigger. I knew that the word wasn't right. appropriate. He shouldn't have called me that. But right. I didn't know it was important enough for me to tell my dad that right at the time that it happened. Right. And so I was telling my dad this story maybe a few years ago. And he goes, he didn't call you that. And I was like, yeah, he did, dad. He goes, well, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, I was like seven. I don't like... I, I was about to drown. I think the last thing on my mind was that he had called me the N-word and I didn't understand the weight that it had to right. it. So it's it, like, this is stuff, like you said, that we've been dealing with for a while. And in America, especially in California, it's very microaggressive. Um, I think in certain places in America, it becomes macroaggressive. And so, and that's really difficult where you have to deal with it at the macro and the micro level. Right. Um, but they, they say, I was reading this article and it was like, um, it was like microaggressions. It was like death by a thousand cuts. And it's like, it's like getting a paper cut, right? Yes. Like you don't remember when it happened, but you just know it hurts when something touches it. Yes. And like, to me, that's like what a microaggression is. Yeah. That's, that's an excellent uh, analogy. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. I, I, re I actually have three stories like that. And the reason, I mean, I actually have a few more, but the three that really stuck with me. Um, mm -hmm. The first one was when I was six and yeah, I'm going to say her name too, because it feels good to say it. Millie Duke um, mm. <laughs> on the playground <laughs> at recess threw sand at me and called me a nigger. And oh my God. That, that was the first time I think I had gotten in my, in a physical altercation and ended up in the principal's office. So shout out to you, Millie ended up um, working out really well for me. Um, <laughs> um, then when it got really real was when I was in college. And like I said, you know, as an athlete, you know, you're in this bubble, you know, it's like everybody's hanging out with everybody else, you know, and you're at this age where you're curious, you know, it's the nineties, you know, there's no racism anymore. Everybody's doing so well. And um, two occasions and they it actually happened uh pretty much back to back so one year one happened and the second year the second time it happened so the first year i was dating um one of the football players and he was a starter i'm not going to say any names and um he was friends with one of my volleyball teammates uh boyfriends mm -hmm. so they were good friends and so this guy and i were dating and you know we liked each other we were hanging out and you know, and it was like getting a little bit more consistent. So it wasn't just like, you know, hanging out on a weekend. It was like, oh, in the middle of the week, you want to hang, you want, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, just crickets. Like it was ghosting before ghosting became ghosting. So mm. <laughs> um, just nothing. Wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't acknowledge me, you know, in, in, you know, in the hallways, wouldn't, you know, say anything, just looked at me really uncomfortable, would always look down. Um, and I was just like, man, what happened, you know, and then that whole thing of, you know, not having closure and, you know, whatever. So, you know, a little mm -hmm. time went by and I, I know my friend, she felt bad. And she said, uh, you know, I have to tell you, if I tell you this, you promise you can't tell anyone. I said, okay, what? She's like, well, you know how, you know, so-and-so just stopped talking to you. I said, yeah. Well, she's like, well, my boyfriend was at so-and-so's house because they used to hang out. They were friends. And so-and-so's mm -hmm. so -and -so's brother was a major league baseball player. And I guess, uh, you know, he was, you know, had, had, had come home for, you know, whatever little bit of time that was. And, you know, was kind of talking to his younger brother and like, hey, you know, are you dating anybody? You know, are you seeing anyone? You know, what's the deal? And I guess he kind of smiled. And the friend said, oh, he's dating one of my girlfriend's friends. She's on the volleyball team. And, and, and the brother says, well, what's her name? And um, he says, Mika. Mika. That sounds like a nigger's name. I hope you're not. <gasps> I hope you're not with a nigger. Now, first of all, my name is Finnish. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, you know, and when she when she came back and she told me that, you know, that's when it hit me how real and you know how real it was and how okay, Mika, this isn't this happy utopian, you know, but mm -hmm. so um and then the second time was was not that long after after that. Um there was another athlete who liked 
me and was pursuing me, but he was dating uh, a sorority girl. And the sorority, I do believe, was Delta Gamma. Yes, I'm, I'm calling him out. I'm not going to say the girl's yes, name. call him out. <laughs> I'm not going to say the girl's name, but I, I know the sorority Delta Gamma. And I think one of my teammates' friends was her sorority sister. So I guess when this girl found out that, um, that her, that this guy that she was dating was trying to pursue me, she said, uh, referred to me, well, I know he's, I'm so pissed. He's after that volleyball nigger bitch. Yes. <gasps> wow. Yes. And so, wow. you know, these things, you know, you got your little suit of armor on, you, you, know, you know, you let it sink in for a minute. You don't let it sink in too far, you know, and then you just keep it pushing, you know? So it, to me, like in college was very significant for me because I realized that I would never in between my air quotes, fit into their world. Mm. Now, when I mean fit in, I don't mean, you know, speaking eloquently, I don't mean, you know, dating out of my race, I don't mean I know how to water ski, I know how to ski, I, I you know, I'm gonna go golf. I don't mean fitting in that way. I mean, mm -hmm. my mind, it was like, no matter what I do, no matter how successful I become, to them, I'm still gonna be a nigger. Mm -hmm. That's when that became real to me. Mm. that wow I'm like still so jarred I'm like I can't but like I'm like I can't believe it and then it's like at the same time like of course I can believe it because people will smile in your face and be x y and z oh like color doesn't matter but like really on the inside they are they are very racist still and then you know what I'm saying and like she probably said that maybe hoping it would get back to you and that it would cut you and hurt you in a way because she felt she was superior to you because she had white skin and right. he liked you for other reasons. And maybe he liked you because you weren't a bigot. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, and he probably saw that in her and was like, I don't like this. And this is why I like Nika, you know? And so it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's well, frustrating. I don't know if you liked me. Let's put it this way. Athlete dudes in college, they like everybody. <laughs> That's fair. That's you know, fair. They're, 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 I mean, these are like, you know, 18 to 21 year old dudes on a mission to, mm -hmm. you know, to put notches in their belt. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, but I mean, but he, you know, he thought I was cool. I thought he was cool. You know, I mean, he, he thought <laughs> mm -hmm. I was cute apparently. And, you know, whatever he, he was wanting to get down. And she, <laughs> she heard about it and was not having it. So <laughs> I think for me, the, the thing that strikes me the most is we go our whole lives trying to find a sense of belonging in a place that we weren't meant to belong anyway right. or in the first place right and so when we finally sink in and we finally think we have friends or whatever we want to call them whatever titles we decide to give them and then they show us their true colors and they, they let us know you actually you know you're not one of us yeah and you will you will never be one of us i i can't imagine like how do we like like you said like how do we even find a way to feel comfortable in our own skin and and comfortable comfortable around these people who because that's what I was trying to explain to some people who were saying like you know well it's it's all lives matter right now or it's da 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 I'm like but to us all of you guys look the same like right. all mm -hmm. all police officers look the same we don't know which cop we're gonna get that day right mm -hmm. you know right um and all white people unfortunately look the same yeah we know not all of you guys are bad but how do we differentiate because when you guys mm -hmm. see us you see one you know you don't separate the the types of black people there are or whatever you know or even if you don't look at it by race so just we we go our whole lives trying to belong or trying to find a sense of belonging and, and we never really find it or the moment we think we found it we get a rude awakening that actually you you don't belong yeah you know i think um you know you nailed it with being comfortable in your own skin and you know, this it, it's a universal concept. You know, right now I'm speaking specifically about African-Americans being comfortable in their own skin. I know for me is the only way to be. So for me, being comfortable in my own skin is okay, Mika. You're black, you're dark, you embrace it. And I really don't give an F what other people think. 
I don't, you can like me, you can mm -hmm. hate me, you can want to accept me, you don't, you don't have to, I don't care. And I think that's the first step, you know, no F's given. That is truly the first step of being comfortable in your own skin. And that doesn't happen when you're, you know, when you're in your mid twenties, it doesn't even happen in your thirties. You're lucky if it happens when you're 35. I am about to be 47 and I can honestly say that I'm comfortable in my own skin today. And the reason I say today is because following, you know, the huge catalyst uh, of, of what is George Floyd and everything mm -hmm. that ensued, this is the first time where if I was 99.9% .9 comfortable in my own skin, now I'm 100% comfortable. People speak mm -hmm. on race now without tiptoeing around it. I don't mm -hmm. care if I'm, I'm not going to walk on any eggshells. I will speak unapologetically about race, you mm -hmm. know? And so um, this is the first time that I'm able to do this, you know, because you always want to be careful about it, careful about mm -hmm. the elephant in the room, careful about the, you know, whatever it is. Well, now I'm at the point where, you know what? I'm calling it out, calling it like I see it. I'm going to check anybody that I feel like they need to be checked if it's expensive. Um, you know, it, it is what it is till it ain't. So, you yes. know, now I can finally be, <laughs> I can finally be unapologetic in speaking about it and speaking about it, even with the, you know, the, the friendships that I've cultivated over the last, you know, 30 years. Now I'm, I'm starting to have these conversations with people that I've known since I was 18 years old and believe me, it, it their, their, their world has been rocked. If, mm -hmm. if I mean, you would be surprised at how many people are willfully oblivious versus truly oblivious. That's true. You know, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it, it's a world full of sheep out here. It doesn't take a whole lot, you know, to convince the majority of people of whatever you're trying to convince them of and get them to sing along and follow with it, you know, and, and not be a critical thinker, you know, and not question it and not do the research and not have the curiosity to educate themselves. So. It's, um, you know, for me being comfortable in your own skin, you know, that is a, that's a journey, you know, that, that just in and of itself is a cosmic journey. I know for, mm -hmm. for me, I know right now I'm, I'm pretty comfortable, especially because I'm, I'm able to just take this, these freaking shackles off and be able to speak about race unapologetically. This is the moment to do it. And I'm going to do it afterwards too, you know, but, um, yeah. this is the first time I've been able to, to, to speak this out loud, you know, on a platform or white colleagues or non, you know, non-black colleagues in 47 years because, mm -hmm. it's, because it's always kind of tiptoeing around it and not wanting to offend and they won't understand. Now I don't care if you understand or not. Right. <laughs> You're, you know, because right. it's right and wrong. There's only two sides of this issue. Literally they're black. It's a, it's black and white. There's no shades of gray here. This is a, this is mm -hmm. right or wrong. So either you're standing on the right side or you're standing on the wrong side, you know, and, and, mindset shifts, you know, for people to, you know, to begin to understand their indoctrination, just like it's going to take mindset shifts for us as African-Americans to understand our indoctrination, our indoctrination, not feeling like we're good enough of not feeling like we're going to fit, of, you know, mm -hmm. you, it, I mean, just, just so many levels to this, you know, so I, I'm not trying to convince the people who, you know, have their mindset, you know, this is what it is. I'm going to roll like a bigot. And that's just how I do. I'm not going to try to convince you because, you know, there's no, there's no point in that. But what I am going to do is, you know, try to talk to as many young people as I can. And, you know, even if sometimes it's painful for me, if I can get one white kid to get it and have that conversation mm -hmm with his white friends or with his family members or, in, you know, when they're in their social setting for that white kid to say, you know what, that's not cool what you just said. I, I don't get down like that. That's not cool. For them to start right. calling it out amongst each other, you know, mm -hmm. that I know that's going to make it a better place for when I'm an old toothless lady. I don't want to be sitting looking at another civil rights movement. And then, for, right. you, know, <laughs> and, you know, and for your guys' kids in the future, Mm -hmm. you know, so if I can I, you reach that age group, you know, of kids that are, you know, still willing to, you know, at least consider some stuff, you know, that 21, 22, 23, 24 range, you can still get people to think about things, you know? Yeah. Right. You're completely right. And I 100% like agree with you. Like, I do feel like for the first time I can just say what I want to say and be in my blackness 
And I feel like, like now that I was never awake, but I just feel more awake than I've ever been at like, and I'm, what well, I'm like, how old am I? I'm 28. <laughs> at 28, for the first time in 28 years, I feel like, oh, look, I don't care about how you do or don't feel. It's Black Lives Matter. Are you either going to rock with it or you're not? Because, <laughs> like you said, you're either on the right side or you're on the wrong yeah. side. Because at this point, and it makes me like, I don't know, it makes me really grateful for some of the experiences. And I always talk about like divine intervention and divine journeys. Mm-hmm. And you always end up where you're supposed to be. And so in college, I remember... Um, I I wrote a play, right? And it ended up being my capstone project, but it started out as the BSU wanting to do something for, um, for Black History Month. And they were like, oh, well, we want to do all these plays, but then they didn't understand, like, no, you have to, like, ask for rights to the play, and that's a whole process, and we don't really have time for this. And so I was like, well, I'll just write a play. I had, like, written a few short plays in high school, and I was like, I can write a play in college. And then as I started to write this play, I was in my capstone that next semester, and then my, um, and the topic was human rights. And so then I was like, oh, well, let's talk about the civil rights movement, but let's use it from a human rights fra- like perspective, perspective. because mm-hmm. it truly, it truly is a human rights movement. And um, Malcolm X in one of his speeches, he says, he goes, we have to take this out of, this is not a civil rights issue. This is a human rights issue. Because as long as we say it's civil rights, it stays within the jurisdiction of the United States. But when we say it's a human rights issue, now the UN can get involved and then they can prosecute people. And I thought that that was such a powerful statement. And so I wrote a play on um, African-American history from West African slave trade to current day America. And at that Mm -hmm. point, I graduated college in 2000. And 14, I took my capstone class in 2013. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about, and I'm, and, and I did it again, I think two or three years later in 2017. And we added on an extra piece. We added on two extra pieces. One of them was on um, the like three hate crimes that happened 24 hours after Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that was one that my co-director wrote. And then I wrote one um, and it was basically a conversation that black men have to have um, or that black parents have to have with their black sons, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, And you seeing it from the black son's perspective, like trying to go through his mind and understand like, well, why was I killed? And this whole time you realize that the person is speaking to you, you don't realize this until the end, the whole time the person that's speaking to you was a ghost of, all of these people who have died before him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and now it's like, oh gosh, like now the world needs this more than ever, right? And like now mm-hmm. we're in quarantine. So, <laughs> so right. we can't see it, but just, but me like having this background and understanding like this is so, so I'm so glad when I hear people say like, this is a human rights issue. It's not a civil rights issue. I'm like, yes, we need more of that energy. Absolutely. You know, and I think what woke the world up especially, you know, that got protests in 18 different countries over an extended period of time. There were protests in all 50 states. And I think what made people realize that it was a a human rights issue, and it is a human rights issue, but the fact that it stood out Mm -hmm. even more is within this context of COVID-19, you know, we've been asked Mm -hmm. to isolate. We've been asked to socially distance ourselves. We've been asked to not touch or hug or, you know, or have what we as humans crave the most, the most intimate thing that we can crave from one another is a human touch. So we have that taken from us with, with COVID taken, you know, in the air quotes, taken from us with COVID. So we're in this moment where we're isolating, you know, and, and mentally we're also isolating because you have to mentally prepare yourself to not do what comes natural as a human. And so, you know, we're in that moment we're isolating, we're on, you know, we're on our phones, we're, 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 we're looking at more stuff. We're, we are exploring more stuff on the internet. You know, we're, we're looking at different mm-hmm. things and, and having, you know, different conversations. And all of a sudden, George Floyd happens. And mm-hmm. it's in the, in the moment where the whole world, you know, is feeling the effects of this human isolation, both physical and mental and emotional. And we watched... Mm-hmm for eight minutes and 46 seconds while someone took someone in the most intimate way that you can take a life. 
And that is mm-hmm. by human touch. There was no gun. There was no, you know, shooting, you know, from 15 feet away. You shoot a dude in the back and it looks like a freaking video game. Or more real than that nowadays. We mm-hmm. watched close up while a man begged for his life and someone took his life in the most intimate way. And mm-hmm. I think that's what made it so human because mm-hmm. it didn't look like, you know, a, a scene from GTA. You know, it, it right. didn't look like, you know, something that we see on the movies. It didn't look like, you know, any of that. It was so real. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you just saw just the different elements of, you know, people standing by, you know, the officer standing by not doing anything. You saw the other officer looking into the camera like, yeah, I'm doing this. And so what? Hands in his pocket, completely calm. That struck a nerve across the world. And how could it not? Because it's a a human issue, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that is such a good point. And I don't, I feel like, that's what I try and get people to understand. I say like, I don't, they don't understand one, how far racism runs, right? There's, I mean, there was some stuff that I learned today that I didn't even know. And I'm like, God damn, I thought I knew a lot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and then, and I was like, I was like, with black people, I was like, it's literally the dehumanization yes. that white people have been doing to us for centuries, not decades, centuries. centuries. They have been dehumanizing us and then making it microaggressive. And I said, and when you dehumanize someone, what you have done is you've subconsciously told your brain that you can do whatever you want to them right. because they are not That's human. Right. They do not feel the same things that you feel. It's why it's why there's so much uproar in the meat industry because of how some of the animals are killed. It's like, there's no need to torture this animal before you kill them anyways. And so they're doing the same thing to black men and women across the, the nation, you know? And so- And, I then, ha- and then have I, more sympathy for the animals. Thank you. <laughs> more more right. sympathy for the animals, but okay, take her dog away. Right. Take the, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, and so that's why people, I'm like, I need y'all to understand Black Lives Matter because when you can value a dog, an animal's life over a human's life, there's something wrong with the picture. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to understand that there's something wrong with the picture and they continue mm-hmm. to perpetuate this. That's what people all the time I said, I will never dehumanize someone. On accident, so, of course, I'm human. We make mistakes and it's something that we've been taught to do. I said, but as I like... And getting older, I'm becoming more woke. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I try and make it an intentional thought to make sure that whatever I do, I make sure that I say, no, they're human. They're not a monster. Mm -hmm. They're human. They made a terrible decision. They're a terrible person, but they are a human. Because when you can think of someone as a human, you can empathize with them. And then you can tell, oh, my God. And so and then I'm going to go on this whole tangent and I'm going to try and cut it short. But basically, as they dehumanize us, there's all this stuff coming out about um, how in the medicine industry and career, how medical professionals have also dehumanized black women, black men, black people. You know what I'm saying? And they're and and then they're like, well, how? Right. And they say that they take these. these surveys when a lot of kids get to medical school and they say, how many of you think that black people can't feel pain? And I was watching something and they didn't say what med school it was, but they were saying like 50% of the med students said that they didn't think that black people experience pain. So for 50% of doctors coming in and they're just in the training stage to think that black people don't experience pain and then learning that they have done. And I did, I already knew this part of the history, but a lot of people don't know this part of the history that they would perform surgeries on black men without anesthesia because they didn't think that black people felt pain is another way that white people were able to dehumanize us and think that we, we have higher, um, what are they like pain, pain thresholds that we can, mm-hmm. yeah, pain thresholds and that we can experience more of it. And I'm like, no, we can't. We experience, and everyone's pain threshold is so different. It doesn't yeah. matter their color. So it's, it's just interesting, the psychology behind all of it. And then recognizing that black people do consider, do experience higher levels of medical malpractice. And it's so microaggressive. Sometimes we don't even know we're experiencing it. Right, right. 
yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, there's, there's so many levels to it. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, it's not my responsibility to Mm -hmm. teach. (laughs) It's not my responsibility to give history lessons. Let me put it that way. Um, Right. You know, black people did not invent the slavery that we know as slavery in the United States. Mm -hmm. We did not invent that slave trade. We did not invent whipping. We did not invent, you know, just all of just the atrocities. We didn't invent it. Okay. And Mm -hmm. I think once we come to the stark, excuse me, once the non-black American uh, population embraces the truth that this was done by white people, they created this. And now it's mm-hmm. their responsibility to fix it. Mm-hmm. Right. I can't, you know, th- these are the people, and, 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 you know, now we're talking about things that are, you know, legislatively. So you, I, I mean, you, you look at who our leaders are and our leaders are predominantly white. You look in the Senate, mm-hmm. predominantly white males. You, I mean, I mean, it all just goes back to this. This is your ancestors problem. And they've probably passed a whole lot of it onto you. And it's, it's white people's, responsibility to fix it Mm -hmm. and you know it it, and it's our i mean we've burdened it for 400 years Mm -hmm. we're continuing to burden it today over the last week i have read that one two three four black men have been hung on trees and they're Mm -hmm. calling them suicides one Mm -hmm. in one in palmdale in front of the freaking city hall one in Mm -hmm. victorville uh, there was a Hispanic uh, hanging. They, the family says that the, the person was suicidal, but a Hispanic man in Texas, another black person in Texas in front of an elementary school and an unnamed person in New York. Now, mm-hmm. like I said, I worked for a couple years in a group home. I dealt with, you know, kids that were suicidal, that had tried to commit suicide, that tried to commit suicide while I was there, uh, that mm-hmm. had done so before. And in my 47 years and within my experience within that group home, I have never heard of anybody committing suicide by hanging themselves from a tree. If you're going to hang yourself, you know, you're at home, you do it in your closet, you know, you do the shower, you're in jail, you hang yourself. A black person hanging themselves from a tree as a way to commit suicide. I just don't think that is what is going on, you know? And so here we are again, you know, we're not hanging our own people. Mm-hmm. White people need to check other white people, and they need to fix this. Mm-hmm. So you know, I can communicate mm-hmm. to you. I can you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But like right. I said, I I will now be unapologetic in what I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree and, completely. And mm-hmm. we want to talk for maybe ten minutes, um, just about today. I've been noticing, you know, this conversation about Black women, our role in the movement, but also how Black men have played a part in muting us. And I know we talked about that a little bit earlier, Mika. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't know, Dee, if you had any thoughts on that or if you wanted to say anything about that as well. But I, I did think that as as this conversation continues to develop in America and worldwide, um, us as Black people, we also have to be able to to talk about the things that are um, riddling our community as well, which are really just products of, um, they're they're products of racism um, and kind of how it's been so ingrained in our country and what we do day to day, right? Like colorism is a product of racism, right? It's because they separated the dark slaves and the light slaves and they put the dark slaves outside and they put the light slaves inside, right? And so then, they and then you have and that's where you get the term like house slave or house nigger from versus right. a field nigger, right? And so right. then there becomes and then there this were mulattoes, quarter rooms, mm-hmm. octoroons, all of that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I like so I did want to like kind of bring that up because I um I've I've seen a lot of stuff today that really resonated with me and how black men um kind of continue to perpetuate a lot of our stereotypes. And this isn't to tear right. them down at all, it's just to bring up a conversation right. that we need to have and that we need to have honest conversation about. Because again, the only way we can truly heal is if we have the honest conversations about, yeah, about it. Right. Um I think, man, 
you know, uh, it, it, this is a tough one because when you look at generational trauma and the things that we pass down, uh, you know, we were taught not to value ourselves. And like I said, you know, black women uh, in regards to this, and I put my air quotes up again, this race hierarchy, you know, we're at the bottom of the totem pole. Okay. So mm -hmm. you look at who's running the country, white men, white men and white women. What do they have in common? They're both white, black men and white men. What do they have in common? They're both men, black men and white men. What do they have in common? <laughs> neither sex, Nothing. neither, nor, 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 nor race or color. And so, you know, I think some of it has to do with misogyny, um, mm -hmm. which, which is, which is, you know, misogyny knows no, knows no uh, ethnicity. I mean, I've seen it all over the world. I lived in Italy and that is like the homegrown place for, <laughs> you know, stay home and cook and be barefoot and pregnant. I mean, they had that kind of culture going wow. on for, for a really long time, um, that mentality. But, um, you know, I think it has to do with misogyny. I think it has to do you know, with what we were taught over the years, and that is to devalue ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. we were taught to devalue our women. I mean, you go back into the slavery days, you know, they were beaten, they were raped. If, you know, uh, one of the plantation owners or an overseer wanted to have one, they would take them. And that is all, you know, devaluing. And, you know, they had to breastfeed, you know, the, the, the plantation owner's kids sometimes, you know, so, but they couldn't mm -hmm. let them suckle off one breast as opposed to the other, because, you know, you got to keep the races separated. So our milk was taken even as, as though we were cows and that's devaluing. And so mm -hmm. you, you have this, you know, and then you get into, to, to, to being, you know, fetishized. And so now, you know, we're seen as sexual objects and that's more devaluing. And so you take all of this and you wrap it up in that big ball of generational trauma and you move it forward you know, and you mix it with, you know, the, the economic, socioeconomic disparity and inequality. And then all of a sudden jump to, you know, the nineties and two thousands. And we got songs about pimps and hoes and slap my bitch and all this stuff. And we're saying mm -hmm. it to our own, you know, and mm -hmm. I, and I know I'm making a huge leap and I'm jumping over a lot of stuff, but I have to make it, you know, kind of, you know, I have to just gather it all together because we don't have a lot of time, but black men have learned to devalue us. And right. even though we are their mothers, we are their grandmothers, we are their aunts, we are their sisters, you know, we're the foundation of the family, we're the hub of that family, you know, it doesn't change that they were taught to devalue us mm -hmm. because that's what they saw, you know? And so now it is a black man's responsibility to recognize where he has failed black women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and, to, and I mean, it's deep. It, it's, it's <laughs> so, it's so deep, you know? I mean, I, I used to co come back and say, you know, I've, I, and I love all kinds of music. I have a very eclectic uh, taste in music. So I'll go from classical music to jazz to, you know, samba and pagogi to bossa nova. And then I'll go, you know, listen to some Italian pop. And then, uh, you know, I love Spanish music and flamenco and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, I, and I love hip hop because I'm, and I'm a hip hop head. That's what I grew up with. Um, but in all the music I've ever heard, you know, we're the only ones that refer, you know, to our women as bitches and hoes. And mm -hmm. we're the only ones that talk about hating. Oh, you a hater, mm -hmm. you know, hate this, hate right. that, will hate on me. Right. And because that's what we were taught, you know, and, and mm -hmm. we don't even realize it. <laughs> right. It's fun. It's, as you say this, it makes me think about hot girl summer and <laughs> me and my, one of my really good friends, like got in this huge argument this summer. We literally were on the phone, I think one day for like five hours, just talking and debating and, um, and really having like an argument about hot girl summer. And so mm -hmm. how I felt hot girl summer meant was like, it's just like, go out, whatever is you and makes you happy, go out and do that. And so whether that's wearing a thong bikini or being curled up in the corner and writing a nook, like reading a book in a nook, we're not going to allow men to tell us what our value is. Right. And so right. I think a lot of black men took to social media and like, oh, you guys are hoes, you're this, you're that. And so then me and him got to like at a certain point in this conversation, he, I said, well, 
I was like, it's crazy because you ask us not to do all these things. You're a hoe. You're calling us hoes, sluts, bitches, whores, all this stuff. I said, but then you go and there's a white woman who's expressing the same type of sexual freedom and maybe doing some things that are more quote unquote degrading to you or whatever. And you would still choose them over us. And then he said something and, and I didn't even think about it then, but I'm thinking about it now. He said something, well, we hold you to a higher standard. And I'm like, no, you're holding us to a higher standard. So you have a reason and an excuse not to confront the real hatred that you have for black women. And like that, like, and that's an issue. So you want to call us all these names and in your way, dehumanize us as well so that you don't see black women as human. So then it's like, okay, well, whatever, I can go and I can date someone else. And so while this friend wasn't, doesn't date outside of the race, um, it's just interesting to look at it because I look at, I have a lot of other male guy friends and mm -hmm. I've had like a few who have said explicitly, I don't date black women. I said, well, how, how, how could you not? Because to me, that seems like a form of self-hatred for you not to think that your own mother and grandmother and the person who birthed you and creates life is not beautiful. There's, there is an internal conversation and dialogue that we need to, um, uh, what's that word? Like dismantle and, and kind of go through and talk about. And I don't know. And that's just my own thing. I think I do get, um, I do like get overly sensitive about it sometimes, but it is, it's hurtful being a black woman. I went to a school, there weren't a lot of black people. My preference mm -hmm. was to date black men and none of the black men wanted to look twice at me. And then yeah. if they did look twice at me, they never looked twice at me in a way to be their girlfriend. But right. any of the other women that were walking by or were light skin and they had curly hair, you know what I'm saying? Like they almost fetishized them in a way and that's still problematic. And didn't and it wasn't just me, it was all of my black friends. So right. to be in a space like that, like that really hit me in college too, because in high school I had never experienced that. So it was just it's it's interesting to kind of see how these dynamics evolve and change as you get older. And oh, then it's, having it's still the same. It's still the same. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I that's what I mean. Same like, thing it, right now in my it, age dating is wow, you know, mm -hmm. and and I see, you know, African American men you know, that are in my age range. And it's the same thing, you know, they're wanting to date out of the, out of, you know, their race or whatever. And like, I personally don't have a problem with it. I, my ex-husband was Italian. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've dated, you know, I've dated black, I've dated, I got a Turkish boyfriend. I've dated, I mean, I've, I've been around the world and, you know, and, and, you know, been in, you know, and I, I don't want to sound like, you know, I, I don't want this to sound like, you know, promiscuity, but, mm -hmm. you know, when I was younger, you know, I'm in, you know, when in Rome, I'm in Spain, the Spanish right. guy thinks I'm hot. I'm going out with the Spanish guy, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, and so I don't want that to be exchanged for, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, running around, you know, hot girl summer and or whatever that's supposed right. to be. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I will say that, you know, I've dated out of my race. I've dated out of my culture, totally out of my culture. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, but, and, and, and back to what we were talking about. Um, it's because a lot of times there, there weren't a lot of African-American men that were interested in me, regardless of mm -hmm. what I had to offer, regardless of, you know, my looks or my this or my that or whatever, or, you know, they, they weren't interested, you know, and I can't mm -hmm. force myself on someone. And so, you know, right. I, that, that happened, you know, that mm -hmm. happened. And, I, and I've, I've, I've dated all kinds of guys. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. At the end of the day, you know, it really does have to come down. Are you going to love me? Are you going to respect me? Are you going to, you know to to be empathetic to who I am and what my dream mm -hmm. is. You it's know? Right. And that's and that and you know and and I can't, you know, cosmically if somebody is about that and you know and they come wrapped in a different package at 47 years old and single, I'm not gonna turn it away. So <laughs> Yeah. Nah, I I feel that because I can definitely say that I like I've dated outside the race and mm -hmm. I've dated a bunch of, you know, the whole the whole spectrum. And I can say that some of the men who I dated who were not black have treated me way better than any black man has ever treated me. And that's sad, you know, like, uh, like you would think that for someone who looks like you, you would have much higher regard for them. And they, and they don't. And I'm not saying that that's every black man, because it's not, I've had some incredible experiences with black men, but right. it just kind of goes to that thing of like, someone said, the, they said, black men, you have to protect black women. And it can't just be black women that you're romantically interested in. Right.
Right. <laughs> True. Yeah, we, we got to, so, you know, we got to do a better job of looking out for each other. You know, um, we were taught not to, you know, mm-hmm. we were taught not to. I mean, and and, and I, and I I'm, I'm trying to, you know, it, it's futile that I try to, you know, go back in, in time and, and, and try to put myself in, you know, one of my ancestors shoes. I couldn't begin to imagine what kind of pain and, and, and psychological just uh, psychological, I just, I can't even begin to like put into words what that would be. You know, all mm-hmm. I could think is that, you know, people got to go into survival mode. So if survival mode means that I need to sleep with the overseer so that I have favor, then I'm going to do it. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. that had to be going through some of their minds, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want them to sell my family, you know, maybe I can do it. You know, I mean, there's just so many things, you know, that there's just so many levels to it, you know, and, and, and as a race, we have been constantly fighting against our own genocide. And, um, you know, hopefully we have other races now that are willing to join us in that fight so that it's mm-hmm. no longer a genocide because th- this is what this has been. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Miko, I definitely want to say thank you so much for joining us today and for having this conversation because while it was not the conversation we planned, it was a conversation that we needed to have. And I'm I'm just truly thankful and grateful for you and your views that you shared with us. And I can't wait to <laughs> I can't wait to interview you and talk about all of the things. Um, we'll all talk things all volleyball. things volleyball. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all things volleyball. But I'm so glad we got to talk about all things black today. That was that was much needed for my soul. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Mine too. It was wonderful talking to you guys. And I'm looking forward to part two. All right. Woo. <laughs> Do you want to hit us with the outro? Yes. So um, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to Midnight on all social medias, aka social media platforms. And you can email us any questions, suggestions, or fan mail to midnight at gmail.com. That's spelled A D M I T N I T at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in to another lecture of Midnight at the University of Netty and D. Apply your knowledge today. Bye. Bye bye.